Hello, and welcome to the Modern Retail Rundown. I'm your host, senior reporter, Gabby Barco, and I'm here with Editor-in-Chief, Kale Guthrie-Weissman. Good morning, Kale. Hey, how's it going, Gabby? Great. Yeah, good to have you back. Yes, it's been a while, um, but you and Anna did great last week. It was really fun to listen to. Thank you. Thank you. It's some big shoes to fill. All right. So every week we break down the biggest headlines coming out of the retail world. This week, there's, of course, as usual, a lot going on. IKEA announced a new store concept for its U.S. market. And then David David's bridal second bankruptcy is on its way. And finally, we have uh, sort of an update on Bed Bath & Beyond, but who knows by the end. Uh, let's start with uh, IKEA. Yeah, so this is, um, I guess, relatively a new store concept. It's sort of in the vein of their design studios that they have popping up. Uh, but it's part of a big push for the U.S. market where they're investing $2.2 billion uh, to expand. They're also adding just more of their regular store count. So a lot going on there. Kale, what are your thoughts? Because this seems like IKEA sort of going back to the drawing board and figuring out what Americans like about it or don't like. Yeah, it seems like it's kind of an unclear vision, I guess I would say. But it's also, you know, IKEA has always been such a global juggernaut, been so important, you know, in Europe and other countries. And now it seems like it's really trying to focus specifically on the U.S., which, I mean, it's a really big player in the U.S., but it's clearly not as big as it wants it to be. And so I think that this it's interesting that now the company is saying, well, we're going to put $2 billion into reinvigorating sort of the, the new types of storefronts that we have in the U.S. So I think it's interesting. Uh, IKEA is clearly trying a bunch of different things to see what works. You know, they have, you know, they're big stores that everyone knows, but there are relatively few of them because they're so huge and they've always been viewed kind of as a destination in the U.S. Like I remember, remember when the IKEA in Connecticut first opened up, and I lived two and a half hours away. And but everybody where I grew up would drive there, and that was such a big deal in like the early two thousands or late nineties or whenever that was. But I don't know. It seems like now it's trying to transcend that and go into something a little bit, a little bit different. I don't know. I, yeah. So I think it's 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 clear that IKEA is saying that it needs to do a strategic rethink, but it isn't quite clear exactly what that is. Mm-hmm. And like you said, actually, the city's aspect is really what comes into play here because um, I think these smaller, they're called plan and order sort of you know pickup points that are coming. They're calling them an extension of the design studios that you know they're in cities like New York where they don't have you know the big. I mean, really, the nearest IKEA is you know, a train, a plane, an automobile (laughs) away from most people. So having these small, uh, centrally located, uh, more of a design studio is is what they were counting on, although it's hard to tell how well those are doing. I think one of them here has closed already. But um, this is just, this is separate, we should say, than the eight more stores that they are adding to the 51, which are just their regular big box ones. But it seems like they are really, I guess, adamant about about having this, you know, sort of like come in and spend a few hours and design your own kitchen idea. But it's just hard to tell whether it's sticking or not, at least for this market, which obviously seems important to them. This is their biggest investment since they opened here um, in the 80s. Yeah, it's super interesting. And it's also coming at an interesting time when I would expect IKEA to make these moves maybe two years ago. Or, you know, when 
when there was really a big boom in home goods, and that's when demand was through the roof. And now we're in an interesting time economically. And so it seems like in some ways, maybe Ikea, not that it missed the boat, I'm sure it's going to do fine. It's a huge company. It's really successful. But it's also interesting that now it's planning this expansion after there's already been a boom and a bit of a flattening out in terms of demand for home furniture, home renovation, that type of stuff, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And of course, it's trying a bunch of different things. I think it's trying to really do resale or more sustainable, you know, marketplace, just like any other retailer. But yeah, this is this just kind of shows that they're ready to grow the actual footprint of the store, um, which, like you said, is hard to kind of figure out because is it because there are so many more of, you know, sort of e-commerce players, you know, the Wayfarers of the world where people are buying their furniture very differently than, than they did even five, 10 years ago. Yeah, I think that that's very true. There's also an interesting thing with um, Ikea, and I can't speak to this really, really intelligently because I only understand it at a very cursory level. But Ikea is different than a lot of other big box stores because it operates on a franchise model and it has fewer franchises. It's not like McDonald's where there are hundreds of thousands. I think there are only about 12 franchises of Ikea, but it it, it means that there's not a centralized company that that plots this out and it has this very different type of format by which it expands and has people who owns those stores. And so that creates a whole new type of strategy when it comes to being a you know a business unit that everybody knows and understands, but also having these sort of lower umbrella players also part of the mix who 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 need to be a part of it, you know. So next up, we are going to be talking a little bit about the wedding woes, I guess you can call them, of David's bridal. They uh, you know filed for bankruptcy this past week. It's their second in about five years. They were just coming out of one in 2018, I believe. And, you know, it's sort of like just as they were transitioning into, you know, more of an omni-channel company. This is their words, not mine. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it and everything seemed to be doing really well as far as we were concerned. I mean, we've been covering them for a couple of years and how they're, you know, they had really come back with this historic wedding boom that we're having. You know, there's that very famous uh, stat, one in four American brides shop at David's Bridal, but clearly things are changing. And um, interestingly, they're blaming taste, really, which is yeah. uh, <laughs> which is interesting. I mean, um, you know, this morning I was reading the UK retailers are blaming uh, the rain, which I'm like, hmm, interesting. Don't you guys always yeah, have it's, rain? It's, it's so. never rained in the UK. This is a brand <laughs> no. new thing for them. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's interesting where in this case, I mean, it kind of makes sense that, you know, younger brides are going for hipper, uh, you know, just outfits, I guess you can call them because some of them are going for uh, pantsuits or thrifted vintage uh, wedding dresses. So they're not going for that big, you know, Cinderella ball gown that we think of when we think of David's bridal. So yeah, why don't you uh, run the numbers, Kale? Sure. I mean, what, you know, pretty much it all comes down to debt, I imagine. And so uh, David's bridal owes $27.5 million dollars to uh to vendors which uh which is a lot of money you know you know what i mean uh and so i think i think the taste thing is super interesting where uh i i want to quote what they said because i th i just thought it was really funny or i don't know if funny is the right word like i don't <laughs> but 
An increasing number of brides are opting for less traditional wedding attire, including thrift wedding dresses. These co- shifting consumer preferences have significantly exacerbated um, the, the company's financials, and the demand for formal wedding dresses, bridesmaid dresses, and related accessories has decreased substantially in the current environment. So pretty much it's saying it can't keep up with the times. The company is going to be laying off about 9,000 workers, meaning I think it's leaving only around 1,000 workers. So that's that's a pretty big deal. Um, I don't know. It just It just shows that you know, you mentioned how you know we've kept tabs on them. I feel like every couple of weeks, as a as a retail reporter, we would get a new press release from David's Bridal about some new some new program they were launching, some new concierge service, some mm-hmm. new customer service. Um, and you know, in some ways, that you know can mean that the company is doing well, but it also can sometimes mean that the company is not doing well and it's trying to throw things against the wall to get people to notice it. And that might have been what was going on for the last few years as it's been trying to struggle to keep up with the trends. Yeah, and, you know, some of that also wasn't just their own um, in-store services. They have tried to sort of merge a more modern approach, you know, with the e-commerce play and then, of course, you know, their concierge chatbot-like service. Um, But they also made a really large acquisition last summer, uh, which is Anomaly, which is a custom... uh, wedding, you know, startup, I guess, direct-to-consumer startup. Uh, it's an mm-hmm. undisclosed sum, but, you know, that was, um, I remember speaking to them about it, and it was supposed to be really their big play to to attract, you know, the brides that are going the direct-to-consumer route or uh, more of the e-commerce route. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's hard to tell, but like you said, maybe uh, the debt aspect really was outweighing or uh, outpacing a lot of these you know, the fruit of these investments. I mean, I think that's what it always comes down to. And I mean, I was looking at its first time um, filing for bankruptcy, which was in 2018. And the company said that it owed between $500 million and a billion dollars to creditors. So hopefully that this debt load is less than that. But also, it's clear that it's a very capital-intensive and debt-heavy business that they have, that they've have not been able to uh, reorient. And so, uh, yeah, e- even with the, the big acquisition there, it didn't it didn't quite work and they weren't able to make the financials even out. Right. Which I guess brings us to the question, uh, can David's bridal, I mean, it, it, obviously it's weathered storms in the past and even lockdowns, um, but can they continue to remain, you know, the top, dress seller in the country or even just wedding uh, retailer in the country. Uh, Like you said, they've added prom, they, you know, they've diversified outside of this industry, but I don't know, who's to say? I can't speak for the wedding industrial complex. I imagine it's much more platform driven than it has been before. I think that, you know, it used to be kind of retailers and, uh, you know, that that would control that that kind of stuff. You would you know you would the first thing a bride would do would be get a wedding dress. But now I think that a lot of that kind of planning and work is being done by the bigger platforms like Zola, like the Knot, like th- those types of places. And I, like I don't think that they necessarily control getting the dresses, but I imagine that that leads to a more diversified array of of types of choices that a that a bride or, or you know anyone can choose to buy from and so i w- i would be interested to know if that has made a dent in in sort of the business aspects of where people are buying their their wedding supplies um and like the fact that 
I don't know. All of the all of the updates that David's Bridal has made over the last few years have been very incremental and very, I don't know. Like I, I was going through some of the, the stories. You know, they they announced a chatbot. They announced a Pinterest like way so that people could plan things. They they announced that they were pivoting to prom a little bit. Um, and these are all good, but none of them spoke to the core sort of shift in how people bought in the type of assortment they had and also in what maybe a modern wedding is looking for uh you know look-wise for 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 their wedding you know uh, yes i will add though they they did i remember they them saying that they have been increasing uh you know less formal because that is what mm-hmm. especially That's true. pandemic era brides were looking for like shorter or uh you know kind of like i mentioned uh uh, a two-piece suit for their uh, reception. So they were doing really well with that, but um, evidently it was just not enough. Or I don't know, maybe everyone's just buying it on a website somewhere. Yeah, are people it. just buying it from a website somewhere? Are people, you know, I've every wedding that I've been to, and I don't think I'm a good subset. Like I live in New York when a lot of my friends are probably trying to cut corners, but like they've had thrifted wedding dresses or I had a friend who bought just a nice dress from Europe that wasn't a wedding dress, but said, this is my wedding dress. You know what I mean? Like, and so I think that the definition of what wedding attire is has definitely shifted. And it used to be much more on the fringes. And now it's seeped into the mainstream where I think people can, can do essentially whatever they want. And that probably is really hurting a business like David's Bridal, which is for one type of event. And that event is very formal and there is a certain type of dress code and it conforms to that dress code. And even if it does start making things that are a little less formal, that doesn't take away the cultural context of what David's Bridal is, you know? Next up is Bed Bath & Beyond's bankruptcy or, you know, I guess the forthcoming bankruptcy, will they, won't they? Um, This has been something we've just been sort of sitting on our hands and waiting for, but I'm not sure they're keeping us uh, in suspense. Kale? I feel like we are a broken record, but, you know, we were were duking it out whether to talk about this or not because we've talked (laughs) about this, you know, two months ago or whatever. But I think it's important because this saga is just so drawn out and so weird. And while there isn't a whole amount of new information, the fact that... So pretty much the first thing that happened, I should back up, of course. The Wall Street Journal uh, reported earlier this week that the embattled retailer said... Uh, the embattled retailer, of course, being Bed Bath & Beyond, um, said it needed to raise $300 million um, from share sales by April 26th to stay out of Chapter 11. April 26th is just around the corner, and it probably hasn't been able to do that. And as a result, the Wall Street Journal says within a matter of days, it likely is going to file for bankruptcy. Um, This isn't the first time, as I'm sure listeners are aware, Gabby is certainly aware, Bed Bath & Beyond, two months ago, literally, uh, was about to file for bankruptcy, and then got this deus deus ex machina from from some investors and from, you know, got some, some new debt that pretty much let it pay off some of its vendors and stay afloat for just the time being. Um, it was an interesting, uh, interesting move. I think that they got like something like two hundred fifty million dollars upfront, and a promise of for as much as one billion dollars. But I don't know. It clearly that was two months ago, and now we're talking about bankruptcy again. And so it seems that this this latest lifeline did not do what it was supposed to do. Right, and uh, you know, I think to even back it up a little bit further, this is coming off uh, on the heels of Bed Bath & Beyond making a lot of investments. We've mentioned previously 
They have done story designs because that was, you know, one of their biggest faults <laughs> to the public <laughs> is that their stores are really messy. They're really hard to find. I feel like I'm always going in circles trying to find the Soda Stream uh, cartridges, <laughs> but that's just that's just me. <laughs> I like theirs. I like that you're going around in circles. It's one of my favorite things about Bed Bath and Beyond. It is, yeah. And then you know when you find yourself by the exit and you're like, wait, no, I have to go back. So it's yeah, it's it's a fun one to spend a Saturday afternoon in. But you know, uh, they've tried to kind of go the more minimalist routes. They added private labels. They work more with the hip startups, the Caspers, the Blue Lands uh, of the world. But all of that to say, I think it's it seems similar to the David's Bridal story, which is that this is a legacy retailer that just can't seem to catch a break when it comes to profitability or debt. I also think that there is another really interesting David's Bridal parallel in the fact that I think Bed Bath & Beyond is really, really, I don't know, I, I, have, I don't know the exact numbers, but a lot of people have wedding registries on Bed Bath & Beyond, mm -hmm. or they used to. And I imagine that has gone down as the business has been, you know, on the brink of failure for how long now? And also there have been a bunch of new players. You know, I think most people probably have their uh, their wedding uh, registries on Amazon and maybe Crate and Barrel. Like, but I don't. I think probably Bed Bath & Beyond no longer plays as big as a role as it used to. And that probably has not been good for the business as well. Mm -hmm. Well, I will say again, from personal experience, it's, it is added, but it's part of, you know, now there's, if you create a registry on Zola, it lets you, it kind of reroutes everybody to whatever store. So it means some brides are making multiple registries, but Bed Bath & Beyond is always, in my view, like kind of at the bottom <laughs> of yeah. the list. You know, I've, I think for me personally, if it's available on Amazon, I'm sending it to you over Amazon. So like you said, but uh, yeah, that was a big part of the, just their overall business that seems to just kind of take a backseat to the uh, other retailers. Yeah. And I mean, it all comes down to, it's a capital intensive business. Like it's, you know, a big retailer that has hundreds, if not thousands of, you know, vendors and brands that sell in it. And they, you know, if they have not been able to have enough money to pay those vendors to sell those things, then they're out of stock. And it's, it's sort of a, a, a circ, you know, a circular thing that's been going on for years now and is now finally catching up to them. Um, and so, so it's not looking good. Um, and I don't know what they need to do. And right now, what's really sad about it is that the ones who are getting hurt now are are the employees. So they've been closing a lot of stores. They've been laying off thousands of people. Uh, and there have just been some really gnarly headlines about some of the shady things that have been going on in the background that have been leaving its workers out to dry. Yeah, yeah. We saw, you know, just recently in New Jersey, they laid off, uh, which is where their uh, headquarter, they laid off 1,300 employees. Um, and then there was some sort of, uh, you know, payment, I, right? Is that what, what it was that um, that they hadn't received yet? So it's, uh, yeah, it's, and they're promising more closure. So we will see. Um, what do you think that means for its footprint, though? Like if they continue to close stores, I mean, uh, where do you go from there? Do you just go sort of just a minimalist route? Yeah, I mean, I think that they're probably gonna have to close a lot of stores. If they're able to save money and rise from the ashes, they're probably gonna have to do a small footprint type of thing. I don't know. I think the name of the game for all retailers that had a very legacy business model that relied on certain types of uh, consumer preferences that might be now outdated. You know, it, it's, it's very analogous to like mall, mall brands. Like they had really big stores. 
they were anchor anchor shops in major malls. Malls are sort of important, but not as important as they once were. People aren't shopping the same as they were in malls. And so you're seeing companies like, for example, Foot Locker, that was a, you know, a big store in the mall, or even Macy's, they're now really uh, honing in their store footprint, thinking about where to open new stores, and they're avoiding the traditional types of formats they had before. Usually they're city centers. Usually they're smaller. They're more curated. And I'm not saying that this is exactly the same as Bed Bath & Beyond, but I think that if if they were to bring in some, you know, if they were to stay afloat, file for bankruptcy, get a lifeline, they're going to probably have someone come in who's going to, with a huge axe, chop a lot of things and then say, here's what we need to do. We need to find the areas where there is the most demand. We need to find the products that most resonate with our customers. And we need to figure out how to curate our assortment and make our actual footprint much smaller so that we can have a store that's actually profitable, that actually, you know, sells through our products without it just staying there. And so that's what I imagine is going to happen if Bed Bath & Beyond is to continue. But of course, I've I maybe I've said this on the show before. I've definitely said this to said this to you Gabby, but like remember linens and things? Like this isn't the first time uh there's been a really big juggernaut in the home goods space that I don't know, it was a household name in my house in the early 2000s mm-hmm. and that has completely ceased to be. And so it is quite possible that Bed Bath & Beyond won't won't be around. I don't know. Right. Yeah. Linen, linen and things. Um, Pure one imports. Pure one imports. Yeah. Um, But yeah, I think this limbo that we're in will uh, tell us a lot. Although, um, yeah, if Bed Bath closes, I mean, that leaves such a big hole because there really aren't any (laughs) retailers left that kind of cater to the specific need. That's true. But I think that a lot of those needs are filled by... By Amazon, which, you know, isn't a good thing, but I think that really cut into Bed Bath & Beyond's business. Or the more higher-end bespoke, like I think a company like the Container Store does sort of what Bed Bath & Beyond does, but at a a more More premium, yeah, curated premium experience. So I don't know. Mm -hmm. Right. So with that said, um, I guess we'll find out by the end of the weekend or by the time yeah, you guys exactly. are listening to this, <laughs> we will have an update. But um, we, I think I read somewhere uh, it could be as soon as Sunday. So we'll we'll look out for that. That brings us to the end of the show this week. You can write and give us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to us. Also, don't forget to subscribe to the Modern Retail Podcast to hear interviews with industry leaders every Thursday. Kale, who do you have on next week? Next week, we have a fun one. Um, It's with Ari Bloom, who's the co-founder and CEO of A-Frame Brands, which is uh, a brand umbrella for uh, pretty much influencer and celebrity-run brands. Um, Fascinating conversation. Please listen. That's right. Yes. We will hear more about John Legend's new skincare (laughs) line, which falls under that. (laughs) Very interesting. Um, Of course, come back Saturdays for the Modern Retail Rundown. Thank you for listening. 